and welcome to episode 219 of the Water Spray Flame podcast. I'm your host, Vaishan, and as usual, I've got Tony with me here today. Hey, T, how's it going? It's going well. Um, I guess that we should start off by uh, apologizing that we didn't have a podcast up last week. Um, mm-hmm. So we'd recorded on a Thursday night. The election was still no, the U.S. election. No one knew. So we were kind of just talking extemporaneously about the election. And then, you know, when I was going to go publish it on Saturday, it still I was like, eh, what real value are we adding to any of this conversation? You know, um, yeah, I talked a little bit about what we talked about um, in my in uh, my Sunday column. Um, but, yeah, so we decided to uh, just scrap that one, because if we're going to give you something, we want to provide actual value, actual insights, or at least make you aware of some things new that maybe you didn't know about. And that's why we actually we're going to try something a little bit different today. Uh, right, Shen? Yeah, so we're switching it up. I mean, usually we, uh, when it's just Tony and I talking, we usually talk about some of our best stories that we've published during the last week. But we're switching it up and we're going to be talking about stories that, that are interesting, interesting that, but we didn't actually get to, uh, get to during the week. So. Yeah. Or somebody else broke and, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, quite frankly, you know, we know that many listeners of the podcast actually are not uh, subscribers of of Waters Technology. And so, one, we want to give you if we're going to be able to link to stories and stuff, we want to make them stories that you should be able to read or that are behind <laughs> a, a paywall, but at the maybe a more mainstream publication that you might actually have access to. And also. Our readers pay a lot of money for a subscriber, a subscription. So, you know, quite frankly, if you want to get our good stuff, <laughs> you're going to have to pony up. Uh, you ain't going to get some free stuff here. You got to pony up. So, <laughs> so that's where we're at. <laughs> well, speaking of ponying up, you know, let's jump to our first story and why, you know, I, uh, there was this interesting story that was initially covered by, I think it's called, uh, the Dallas something. Dallas Morning News. <laughs> Right. A very, very big, popular newspaper here in America. So I'll forgive you for not knowing about it, though, out there in Hong Kong. Well, seriously, it was the first time I've ever heard of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, any, anyway, so they came out with an article saying that, you know, NASDAQ and other major exchanges uh, that have hosted, that are hosting the data centers out in New Jersey are in talks with the uh, the mayor? No. With the- <laughs> let, let me help. I'll, I tell you what, I'll take it okay. from here because yeah, this you is a little it. bit more U.S. political. So uh, Governor Greg Ab- Abbott, uh, Republican from Texas. Um, so on November 20th in the state capitol in Austin, uh, there are going to be um, a coalition of individuals from, as they report, from NASDAQ, SIBO, Citadel Securities, uh, Data Center Upper, Equinix, uh, IEX, Members Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Intercontinental Exchange, TD Ameritrade Holding, Virtue Financial, and UBS. Uh, just an array of firms heading on down to Texas in the middle of a pandemic. And um, <laughs> they're going to, yeah, talk about potentially moving their data, uh, data centers um, out to Dallas from the various places in North Jersey that many of these firms have their exchanges. Now, the reason why this is happening is um, the New Jersey is had uh, proposed a a tax uh, uh, a, a quarter of a 
a quarter of a cent, so 0.25 of one cent, uh, per financial transaction at entities in New Jersey that process at least 10,000 transactions annually via electronic infrastructure. So the trading firms themselves are going to need to think about, you know, is this, is this kind of a tax for our high speed needs? You know, can we offset those costs that this tax will bring when they say it's going to generate an estimated $10 billion of revenue for New Jersey annually? Um, is this something they can handle? And then the exchanges are going to have to think, should we just start moving our matching engines, our uh, trading technologies out to Dallas? Which brings up some interesting questions, I guess. Right, Shen? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I... I read quite a few of the um all the other I guess media outlets that have covered this since then. And I think that I feel that there's still a lot of questions that have not been answered. There are many more questions that it just raises a lot more questions. Like for example, you know, what does this mean for HFT firms out there? You know? Yeah. Back before before uh Flash Boys was published, you know, um all this talk about build, putting in new lines, building, putting lines underground to like essentially get closer to the exchange's data center, you know, yeah. to try and get an edge. You know, what happens to that then? And think about like all the infrastructure, like all the microwave technology that they're building that is supposed to connect into from Toronto, from Chicago into North Jersey. Now, I don't know if that has if that because that's just data being sent like. Yeah, that, that's something now that, sorry, I just kind of jumped in there, but that's another one that you kind of think about. What happens to all this infrastructure technology? Yeah. And, and obviously it's going to, I mean, if, if they, these exchanges actually do do that, it's just going to, um, it might, it might cost them even more, don't you think? Uh, well, first they're going to have to build the data centers out there. And then what about all the lines? They're going to re-divert. All these underground lines and, as you mentioned, microwave technology out to Dallas is also this takes a lot of time, right? In the middle of the pandemic or towards the end, maybe I don't know where we are in the pandemic, but God, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> How long is that going to take? Well, and, and this is the problem that so we're asking questions and some of them. We acknowledge, let's just, let's just acknowledge right up front. Some of these questions are silly, but also I, like we were looking around, I haven't really seen good answers for any of this yet as to, is this just like, so high frequency trades will still be injured. Like you, you can't have high frequency. I can't, I just, can you have high frequency from Dallas? So I don't fully understand that. Um, all the infrastructure that's been built to, Specifically, you know, in Mawa and Northern Jersey to connect into Wall Street. What becomes of that? That's just loss. That's just, and, and can you ever think of a financial firm just saying, yeah, you know, it's, they say it's like it's going to generate $10 billion of tax for the state. I mean, aren't these firms making $10 billion off the trades in a day? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, it, so this is why we understand these are stupid, stupid questions. But I think that there's also something to be said for the fact that NASDAQ has been talking about – so we had um, Nikolai – Love you. God damn, sorry. Uh, 
we had him on the podcast here talking about how Nasdaq is trying. He really envisions in the next couple of years that Nasdaq will be an exchange that's in the cloud. And we discussed some of these high for your trading, the matching uh, technology, stuff like that, stuff that is so latency sensitive that it can't go into the cloud now. So I, what then becomes of all that effort? And quite frankly, these individuals who are building the technologies, are they going to be able to either work remotely, still be here in New York and connect with their teams down to Dallas? So we keep on talking about this whole, everybody can work remotely. It's fine. So you just have hardware developers down there building the stuff down in Austin. I think to me, it feels like a lot of saber rattling just to scare off New Jersey from – because what's the loss for New Jersey? New Jersey gains $10 billion annually from the state. What's the lost tax revenue from these companies should they actually go through with this? All those data centers, all those big fancy offices that they put in New Jersey City and uh, uh, Newark and North North Jersey – if they start moving out of the state because they're like, oh, we don't have to have our matching, what does that mean for them? That could be a lot of loss um, income tax uh, revenue that goes down the drain. And then – so to me, it just feels a little bit saber-rattling. But I don't know. You know, If NASDAQ is talking about moving their exchange to the cloud, maybe you take a short-term hit for a long-term game. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what the answer is, and I don't feel – I think you said this earlier, but, you know, that no one's really kind of explained it that well yet. Yep. Maybe so, it's our turn to explain it. <laughs> Try and explain oh, listen, it. <laughs> no, listen, it is true. Like, you know, at some point we're going to have to figure out what does this all mean from a technology perspective. But I'm also not going to sit here as an editor of a publication, tell my reporters to put a ton of resources into figuring out every last little bit of what this infrastructure means, and then them goes and New Jersey saying, no, we're not going to do it, and everybody's saying, yeah, okay, we're going to be fine. We're just going to stay here. So, <laughs> you know, to me, again, it feels like saber so I'm not inclined to go full bore into explain it, but if I'm New Jersey, I call the bluff a little bit. I say, tell, tell you what, list us out. What, what, you know, what does this mean for you moving everything out to Dallas, whether it's the infrastructure provider, whether it's the technology or the, the exchanges, or it's the actual trading firms themselves? Um, and, you know, it goes. So this actually brings up another article uh, from the week is, you know, so the theme of today will be kind of people remote work and new places to work out of and whatever it is. But um, Business Insider. um wrote about uh, Goldman Sachs uh, CFO explained why he's feeling more confident about plans to move employees to lower cost hubs like Salt Lake City and Dallas. I always thought Waters Technology had the longest headlines, but, you know, it's always good to know business insiders out there because they're, they definitely, uh, they, they have whole paragraphs as, as a paragraph. Who knows? Maybe one day we're just going to follow them in their lead. You know, I mean, I actually like it. I get the full gist of the story right there in the headline, but, um, yeah, CFO, um, uh, Stephen, Stephen, Stephen Schur. I'm going to assume that's how you say his name. I just say, you know, it's ironic. Dan Francesco, old podcast, uh, host here, uh, who actually created the podcast. It was his idea. He went on, uh, to risk and then the business insider. And I always made fun of him for butchering people's names on the podcast. 
And now here I am doing the same thing. Maybe I don't yeah, know what's yeah, happening. We, we switched places. So you, yeah. you're the new Dan, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Steven said that they are actually looking um, to move staff out. And they've been doing this, actually. So this, is, this isn't hypothetical. This is actually something they have been act- actively doing. But moving more people out to Salt Lake City, um, Utah, Dallas, um, again, pop a lot of people down there. And, and they also throw in a traditional outsourcing hub like Bangalore in uh, India. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be the interesting part. Is It feels to me. Like there's a lot of knee jerk reactions. Like, yes, we are going to, we are going to open this up. And we've written articles about it. And we've had people on our website and on the podcast saying, yes, this is what's going to happen. We're going to start moving people remotely. I feel like there's a bit of prisoner of the moment going on here. Which jobs are going out there to Salt Lake City and Dallas? You know, are, are we still talking about the high-end technology jobs? Are we still talking about the top-notch programmers? Are we still talking about um, uh, much less the traders? You know, because why then – why wouldn't you just – if so let's say you're trying to find new talent in new areas. So somebody – a talented programmer from Denver, Colorado. Instead of saying you gotta move to New York, you're now saying you can move to Salt Lake City, or you're saying you can move to Dallas. I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me, right? That's why not just have this hotshot programmer that can work remotely. It does. That can just you can fly him in quarterly for meetings that you know he or she needs to be at. Um, good save right there by myself there. Uh, <laughs> um, why not? You know, it it, it feels like. These plans by Goldman have been in the works. Mm. Um, but what are the jobs that are actually going out there? You know, and that's, I think, where a lot of firms are talking a big game. And I'm not saying Goldman is. I'm saying other firms that are trying to sound like Goldman are talking a big game. But what are they actually going to do? And do they really have a plan or is it just going to be working remotely? I don't know. Well, I don't know that, that that when they say relocating or moving uh, moving uh, employees out to these so-called low-cost hubs, you know, um, are they really doing that? Are they saying now, like, okay, you work in New York at the moment, let's have you move to Dallas? And I mean, wouldn't that involve a, a lot of consideration on the individual employees' part? Like, I, and and we've talked about this before, I think. Uh, in, in, in past, um, episodes, you know, <laughs> that just will just bring such a huge HR headache, I feel. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's just so much to consider. Would they then mean, would that then mean that maybe some of these jobs do go away or some of these employees do go away and like they actually start the hiring process from that, um, so-called low-cost hub? Uh, immediately. So whoever is in that area would be like, okay, oh, Goldman has just posted a job in Salt Lake City. Okay, I'm going, I'm in Salt Lake City. I will apply for that, you know, instead of like, oh, oh Goldman Sachs, oh, all the way in New York, for example, or like Hong Kong or London, wherever it is. And like, oh, I got to go there if I want this specific job. Mm. 
but okay, would I rather and go also- to Hong Kong, London, or like New York compared to um, <laughs> compared to Salt Lake City? Oh, I got I just got hired by Goldman. I'm going out to Salt Lake City. How exciting Trust- is that? Put me in Salt Lake. Salt Lake City is a great, great town. Amazing breweries out there. Surprisingly, in the Mormon state, they actually have some really, really good breweries, stuff like that out there. Um, really cool place. But, and, but that is then the question I say is, all right, you want to become a partner at Goldman Sachs. You want to become, you know, have real influence and say, are these sites that you're setting up in Dallas, in, um, Utah in uh, Warsaw. Also, they said because they said that you know. So at their investor day in January, um, at Dakin Campbell here uh, reported they're looking to slash 1.3 billion in costs over the course of three years. And um, somebody named Waldron, uh, oh John Waldron, uh, President Chief Operating Officer, uh, he said our goal is to increase this percentage and get closer to 40 percent over a reasonable period of time. And that's the other things, a reasonable period of time. How long is it going to take NASDAQ or NYSE or SIBO to build that exchange data center out in Dallas? How long is it going to take to get real good talent? And so it's not a satellite office out in Dallas. You know, Dallas, at least I can, I understand a little bit more. Again, no, no state income tax. Um, Austin, you know, is a very, it's it's an interesting town, college town, um, great, fantastic bar scene down there. Actually, a hotbed. Austin, Texas, is a hotbed for real good metal music. Wait, wait a minute, uh, wait a minute. It's it's the common theme here, like best bars. Yeah, and yeah so I'm, 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 I'm thinking about bars and breweries. I'm, listen, I'm just trying to talk about what I know here. You know, I I don't know a lot about what's going on. So I do incorporate some things that I do actually know about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there is this idea of do you not fear that you become a satellite office? You know, we were, you know, listen, let me be, I'll, I'll be quite frank here with my company. You know, so I've been, uh, Waters Technology is currently owned by a French company called InfoPro Digital, uh, very, very big French company. I had no real presence, didn't have any presence in Asia and in New York. And a big reason why they purchased us, um, is because they wanted to have centers in these two cities here. That was a big thing for them to, to have more of a global expansion rather than just being, you know, known in the French world. They wanted to spread out in, um, the, in the North America region and now in Asia, right? And, but we were owned by Incisive Media before that, which was a London based company. And, you know, I, I think Wisha and I have talked about this on the past, on the podcast before, but, you know, sometimes you do feel like a satellite office that, you know, the decisions are being made in London, you know, and that's where the, and it's funny because our company is even different than most because InfoPro Digital located in Paris, the people that own us, are in France and Paris, but they allow our group uh, of publications to run with, as best I can tell, full autonomy. Like, a, but I would, I'm not privy to those kind of conversations. I'm just an editor of one publication. There's, there's other salary about. package at the moment. <laughs> but so you do feel like you know that you know God, like if you're right there every day, you have more power, you have more influence. 
with the people who have the most power and influence. So it's like what you said. Are we just setting up these sites there, but we're just hiring almost locally there? Or are we going to send – allow some of our talent to go out there and live out there? I don't know what those questions are, and I don't think that a lot of places have – there. COVID-19 and the pandemic have allowed people to talk a much bigger game about remote working without providing that many specifics because they don't know yet what the hell they're going to do. Mm. Um, they're trying to make guesses just like we are here at our company. But honestly, it's much easier for us to work remotely. I mean, you know, you've been just – but you know, people don't know, but Wei Shen is our only reporter out in uh, Asia. Asia. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you, you, we've been having to coordinate for a long time. I don't think that a lot of firms are really kind of these big multinational, you know, 40,000 people working for the company. I don't know how much they've really planned this out. I think that they're still playing wait and see, but publicly they're kind of talking a bigger game to, to kind of read the tea leaves and see – see what people internally think and see what externally uh, gets brought back at them. Hmm. I, want, I wonder if this has, I mean, since that Goldman article came out, I wonder if internally they have been already having these conversations with their employees and how that's going. You know, that's who other people want to read about, whether you're a small hedge fund uh, uh, at a small bank or at any sort of vendor. You always want to get their feel for what they're doing because there's inha- there's this inherent thought that they know that they have this they have this secret knowledge that no one else knows. You know, I don't think that's probably the case. I think that they're just trying to figure this shit out too, just like everybody else. And you know, they're just going to get a little bit more leeway um, from their employees than you know uh, another smaller investment bank that's maybe been struggling uh, a little bit more over the last few quarters. I, you know, but, nah, I mean, I'm not and don't, don't forget, this is also a bank that, uh, you know, got itself involved uh, arranging some deals for... Oh, my God, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a huge like with Malaysia? Fraud. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and the monstrous payout. So, exactly. But it's funny because, again, I think that there are so many people who are like, not only do they, like, yeah, Goldman knows stuff, but Every, I think that if you ask, like if you took a, I talk about how much I hate polls and stuff like that, but if you were to actually talk <laughs> about, you know, what do you think? You think Goldman's up to some shady? They'll be like, yeah, yeah, definitely they are. They have no evidence. They have no reason to believe. But yeah, so there's, Goldman has both of those auras, right? They have the, they're this, just, just this money making investment bank, but there's also that, I don't know, just the whole financial crisis, everything that happened with Greece, everything that happened with Malaysia, all these kind of things. You're kind of like, yeah, but they're also proud. So they get both improper good and improper bad. And somewhere in the middle, there is truth. Uh, <laughs> so this is all to say, again, we're just going to highlight articles, but you better believe that every single other investment bank Read, is reading that article if they have a subscription to Business Insider. We do. I highly recommend them. I mean, our stuff's better, but you know, yeah, you definitely get a, a subscription to them. Uh, theirs is more affordable, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to sell us, Tony. <laughs> uh, but I think that it just goes to show you that everybody's just kind of dipping their toes in the water, talking about all this stuff. But again, 
they have been actually setting up these offices. So they do have a plan in place right now. Um, and, but, you know, just quite frankly, there wasn't much more detail that was provided, uh, uh, for, for what they're doing out there. But I think that then that brings to the third and final topic. Um, and that's going to be, all right. You can set up these shops. You can have, let's go back to the work remotely and stuff like that. Programmers, right? We're always talking about the, the hunt for talent. You know, there's a machine learning, you know, void of talent of people that really know, but it's growing. It's, it's, it's improving cloud infrastructure, um, engineering. As more firms go to the cloud, people with engineering skills specific to cloud technologies. And, you know, we always hear about these fancy new programming languages that are coming out and coming to the forefront. But one other thing, um, e-financial careers. I've, and by the way, I, I say I, I love reading their stuff. Like they got really good, um, yeah, you, know, you get a real good feel for for where the industry is moving, especially on the tech front uh, with their stuff. So I will give them a ton of credit too. Um, but uh, the article is best programming languages and platforms for data science and finance. Um, and they talk with Graham Giller, the former head of data science research at J.P. Morgan and ex-head of primary research at Deutsche uh, Bank. Uh, today he is the CEO of his own firm, Giller Investments, and he's written a book that's coming out uh, later this month. We should try and get this guy on the podcast, actually. Adventures in Financial Data Science, actually. So it's, I think it's just going to be on Kindle, available on Kindle. Um, but we should read that and see if we can talk him in. Uh, oh, you know, Graham, if you're actually listening to this right now by any miracle or chance, give us a, give us a ring. <laughs> but because there are some things from this article, so he, it, it felt like he'd listed five things that, uh, he thinks is going to, uh, change finance. The, the ones that we want to talk about is, so he's just very, very heavy on Python, Python three, um, as opposed to Python two. Um, and he said that R is falling out of favor, which person, uh, so it's a quote from him. Um, R is falling out of favor, which personally I am unhappy about because it is more rooted in rigorous inference than in coding. I don't fully know what that means, but <laughs> it is interesting that R is falling out because that is an, that is a language that we hear a ton about, like when, you know, that this is one of the main skill sets that you need to have if you want to be a Wall Street, uh, programmer, uh, engineer. And then he said, uh, how is the role of data scientists in finance changing? The role of data scientists is becoming more that of an IT professional than a thought leader for organizations. I would love to actually have him on to explore that response a little bit more because if you're talking about data scientists and he's talking about, you know, kind of the, the quant trader, is he talking more just about the heads of research that are, you know, kind of, Putting together where the, where the vision of where the bank from a macroeconomic perspective is heading. I'd be surprised if he thought that they are becoming more of an IT professional than somebody that's more on the thought leader, uh, what do you say? Thought leader for organizations, which to me, that means the business side of it. I don't know. That's, so those are kind of the two takeaways for me that I, that I thought was interesting. Is there anything that jumped out for you there, Shem? Well, I was wondering, yeah, I mean, just on that, the role of the data scientists, because now, uh, how how does that then fit into, uh, f- from my my perspective anyway, um, it seems like, well, the data scientist was always on its own, 
on their own, I guess. And like the business would reach out to them for like, yeah, how do you innovate or how do you, how do we bring some value to this specific process? How do we change it up? Uh, what new innovations can we uh, make with or can we produce with this XYZ data? Um, and then, you know, having to bring someone else in to kind of like make the two speak together more, um, I guess, in sync, yeah. uh, you know, like well, it's what you wrote about, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. what you wrote about. Yeah. So like, I don't, uh, it just seems like they're, they're right now an island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're an island and, uh, how they are going to be fitting into, uh, that of an IT the IT team, I guess. I mean, I guess in a way they well, are. <laughs> well, they have programming skills, but just because you have programming skills, that doesn't make you IT, right? That's yeah. You know, just you know, so that's that's where I don't see the. That's where I see the disconnect here is if you were on if it is if a data scientist always knew Python, they had to they had to know R. You know, yeah. that this isn't 1980, right? This is, you know, 2020 here. You know, it's like, of course these people had strong programming skills to call information, um, from large data sets. This isn't anything that's new. So that's where I, I'd be interested in if anybody else has kind of thoughts on, you know, where is that, where, what is the data scientist? What is that role today? Because if we aren't talking the same thing when we talk about what a data scientist is, then there's going to be a problem if, you know, if you're going firm to firm and their idea of a data scientist is different from firm to firm, right? I will say, actually, though, there was one. Uh, so we're so we're recording this on a Thursday night. We'll see if I post this on Friday or on Saturday. She was uh, listening to a couple panels on CQF Institute's Quant Insights Conference. Hardcore, hardcore quant conference. And so they asked the audience, uh, which language users think will still be relevant to quant finance in five years? Python received a very nice 69% of the vote of 926 uh, respondents. Uh, C++ was 16% second. So they were far and away the most popular. R took in 4%. Uh, C sharp took in 3%. Julia language, again, um, uh, something that we've been writing about for a couple of years now. They, uh, pulled in 14, uh, uh, 14, uh, four, not 14, 4%. <laughs> um, but it really goes to show you that in quant finance, I, it, as much as people talk about this kind of shift and this evolution and I need to learn new skills, I need to learn new languages. It does feel like, you still got to be sharp on the Python and the C++. And so what does that mean as far as finding talent? Um, maybe when I go through the editing process, I'll just cut out my stupid extemporaneous. You see, that's what I was saying. You know, I was saying that we got to stop doing extemporaneous. And here I am just going, just Ex- talking. <laughs> yeah, it's like that word. I don't even know if I'm using it correctly, to be honest with oh you. I like it. I don't think I know the full definition of it. Just an editor. I don't Big really words. know what words mean, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I got nothing else. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> we'll be back with a guest next week, I think. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, if not, you'll get Tony and I just or talking extemporaneously. Like, Bone proof. Don't worry. <laughs>
Bye-bye.